Two of the legends really of the Rising are one that everybody hated the rebels at the time in Dublin and the other that Dubliners took the opportunity to loot the city centre. Are they true? I mean, you're talking about the people who lived in the inner city, very poor people in the tenements. Certainly, there's no question the evidence is overwhelming that there was massive looting. The fair number of people who were shot in the O'Connell Street area were people who persisted in looting even after the fighting had become quite ferocious. And in fact, it wasn't until the British artillery destroyed some of the shops uh, that were being looted that it actually stopped because the buildings had been burnt to the ground. So that's undoubtedly true. I think there's a lot more bemusement than hostility. There was very strong reaction against the rebels when people often didn't take them seriously as Dubliners don't. And I think it's one of the, actually, one of the striking things uh, uh, that's different about the, the troubles in the 1920s, uh, amazes me, but from 1916 right through to War of Independence and the Civil War, what, what I find is amazing is the huge crowds that used to gather and watch the fighting. I mean, that wouldn't have happened in Belfast in 1970, say, if bombs were going off or, or guns were being fired, unless they were involved in the rioting or the disturbance, people would flee the scene or stay indoors. But Dubliners at that time seemed to have an insatiable curiosity and would go out and people were definitely shot because they just were standing there watching everything going on around them. So there were certainly incidents. James Stevens accounted a rising where Kavanaugh was shot as he tried to remove his, his cart from a, a rebel barricade and people booed and cursed the volunteers. Another case outside Boland's Mill where a soldier returning Beggar's Bush Barracks started giving out to the volunteers in the buildings that were occupied and were shot as well. And again, the crowd sort of obviously sympathised with him. So there was undoubtedly reaction there. But even during the Rising, I think there were also indications in parts of the city of sympathy. Some of the garrisons at Mount Street managed to escape with the help of local people. One man was actually grabbed as he fled the scene by one group of residents and another group of residents intervened and there was a bit of a punch-up and get away. So, And again, I think some of the evidence from people who took part in the Avon Camps garrison, they said afterwards when they surrendered that there was no hostility that people actually supported as they were marched to captivity. On the other hand, of course, there are the accounts of famously or infamously of a separation women, as they were called, who attacked the volunteers. I think that reaction is perfectly understandable for two reasons. One is the rising actually coincided with the first anniversary of the fighting around Mousetrap Farm and Saint-Julien and a number of other places a year earlier. So a lot of those women who would have been widows or mothers or sisters or daughters of serving soldiers or men who died or were seriously injured, it's the actual anniversary of those events that coincided with the rising. I think the other thing is just a normal reaction you get, and I suspect a lot of those women weren't even married or related in any way to soldiers, that, you know, their lives and their families' lives have been put in jeopardy by this totally unexpected outbreak of fighting in the middle of their own city, and how would you expect people to, to react except with hostility towards the people who caused that? Uh, and at that stage, I don't there's any doubt in people's minds that the people who caused it were the people who went out and built barricades and shot at British soldiers. So, uh, yes, I mean, I think it's undeniable there was huge antipathy towards the rebels, but there were indications even then that other people were already well alienated from British rule because of the hardship and the disruption to normal life that had been going on since 1914, since the outbreak of the war. So I think both those were in play. I want to talk a little bit about the actual combat during the Rising. Now, one of the things that we've talked about before and that you've written about is that many of the volunteers saw no combat during the Easter week, but a small number saw a great deal and there was a great deal of bluntly killing. 
One of the interesting things or striking things I saw in your book was that for some volunteers, killing was a great wrench at first, but it got easier. Is that a kind of a sinister warning of what combat means? I suppose violence is violence and fighting is fighting. And yeah. in the Irish conflicts, just like any other conflicts, you know, some people had huge reservations or difficulties about what they did, but a lot of people didn't. And, you know, some people enjoyed it. And, I mean, there's interesting differences between 1916 and the War of Independence. The violence was quite different. I mean, people in 1916, people killed people who they didn't really know. The violence was in many respects, could be considered kind of conventional violence. A lot of rebels wore uniforms, the mm. British wore uniforms. Or I see men may have been unarmed, some of them, but they wore uniforms. And also the, the fighting took place in often in what could be described as kind of actual battles. Think of the fighting at Main Street Bridge, for example, which is like mm. something that could have almost occurred on the Western Front with the huge numbers of British troops charging hours and hours on these rebel positions. Or the fighting, for example, in that takes place in Ashburn when you have sort of a, almost like a proto-flying column being engaged by large numbers of OIC. Mount Street Bridge was the place where the British, as you know, suffered the heaviest casualties, and I think that was just ignorance of the city and ways of getting through the city. Plus, there was this order issued by the British command that any rebel post encountered had to be suppressed before moving on. So the Sherwood Forest that arrived at Mount Street Bridge had no discretion. They had to suppress the positions there held by the rebels before they could proceed any further, whereas it would have made much more sense for them to have been allowed to find uh, less strongly held uh, positions along the canal to get into the city because their objective was to reach the city centre and to reach Trinity College. Yeah, and instead Western Front style, they went frontal assault and, and suffered really heavy casualties. They did. Uh, we don't even know you could leave Western Front because a lot of them were poorly trained. They left a lot of their equipment behind them. When they walked into the position, they didn't know what to do except to keep moving forward or trying to move forward. Commander paid the rebels a backhanded compliment of claiming afterwards that they must have been paid mercenary fighting because of the half of all the British casualties in in 1916 were suffered at uh, Mount Street Bridge. I think there was only 12 volunteers or something in the position. Well, there was a, a platoon strength. They weren't all in, in Clan William House, which was the house commanding the bridge. Malone, whose brother had actually died in the Battle of Mousetrap Farm uh, almost exactly a year before. His brother William, who was a sergeant in the Dublin Fusiliers, funnily enough, Michael Malone, who was the lieutenant in charge of that platoon, he deployed them in the local schoolhouse and in his own most exposed position at Northumberland Road, number 25. So uh, the British, I don't think, became aware that they were actually being fired on from three different directions until quite late in the day, again, indicating sort of inexperience and lack of knowledge of the area they were in. I mean, doctors and nurses were busily ferrying casualties around the rebel position to get them to Sir Patrick Dunn's hospital. The British don't seem to have made any attempt to infiltrate around the enemy position. One reason why rebels are very comfortable talking about this violence and even celebrating this violence was because it seemed kind of chivalrous, it seemed kind of conventional. Whereas if you think about the violence of the War of Independence, it's really quite different because a very large proportion of people killed in the War of Independence were unarmed, they were assassinated, they were killed in reprisals and cyclical violence and so on. And it's in that sense, it's much more of a kind of a dirty war. Whereas 1916 would come to be seen as a much more kind of honourable type of military combat. And of course, that was its purpose to a large extent. I mean, if you think about the whole way in which 1916 unfolds, with the 
and uh, IRA basing themselves, seeing them depicting themselves as kind of legitimate military force. It was very much to signal that that the rising was a legitimate military act by a force which saw themselves as acting as a conventional army would everywhere. Self perception doesn't quite hold up with reality because they they, they fought in a in a built up inner city and so on. So there are obvious differences, but they did perceive themselves as a as a very kind of conventional force, and that's I think one of the reasons why a lot of them didn't really have great problems or regrets about the use of violence, even though. In reality, the biggest number of fatalities was, of course, the civilians who, who were located in Dublin. I think it's very interesting about our, our perceptions of the morality of violence that we think that it's okay and in some way chivalrous to fight armed men against armed men. But actually, the biggest the group which suffered most in the Rising were civilians. Who do you think was responsible for the civilian casualties, by and large, in the Rising? I think there's a divergence between how the rebels saw their violence and how other people at the time saw their violence. So the, the, the rebels saw themselves behaving as a very chivalrous kind of conventional force. But the British Army, the, the police, and a, a, a lot of observers in Dublin and elsewhere at the time uh, felt that this wasn't any kind of fighting that they recognised. It was men behind buildings and so on fighting in a, in a civilian area. So, that, so even though there was a big divergence, which you can see in the coverage of the Rising, you get some kind of coverage suggesting that the rebels are kind of heroic and chivalrous, but you also get a, a lot of kind of... Um, you know, horror at what has happened. In my opinion, the rebels behaved in a much more, they showed much higher standards of discipline and restraint with their violence than the British forces did. I think there's a number of reasons for this. I mean, right from the outset, the rebel leaders emphasised that 1916 was almost like the propaganda of the deed. You know, Pierce told the rebels that through their behaviour and through their high standards and their restraint and so on, that they would inspire Irish people and the international community. So they were very conscious of behaving well. And you get a lot of restraint in terms of when you look at the actual people that the rebels kill, they very often don't kill policemen because they're unarmed. They often don't kill soldiers who are unarmed or who don't attack them. By and large, they tend only to kill people who actually engage them directly, and that's both in Dublin and other places like Ashbourne. So that's one kind of of interesting example of restraint. Another reason why the rebels don't kill a lot of civilians is because they're basically confined within garrisons, and they're small in number and they're not very well armed. Whereas if you look at the British military, by the end of Easter week, there's 20,000 soldiers in Dublin, and they're moving through a very difficult environment in which they can be fired upon from practically any direction. And because the rebels often don't wear uniforms, a lot of the British soldiers who had encountered very stiff resistance coming into Dublin, you know, basically shoot anything that moves. British also use heavy machine guns and artillery and apply this in heavily built up areas. So my feeling would be that a very large proportion of the the casualties are caused by the, the British decision to use really kind of the methods of the Western Front in Dublin, which, in, you know, in some respects is a kind of a curious decision. A lot of these soldiers are kind of brutalised and there's a lot of examples of very poor standards of discipline. So a lot of atrocities that we do know about were very often committed by the British side. So, for example, the killings of civilians on North King Street or the shooting of civilians in Portobello and Rat Mines by an officer who apparently went mad but was left unrestrained by his other um, soldiers. So you, so you do have an imbalance in that way, but I think it's kind of got to be put into an, a context to explain um, why it is, and there's quite a lot of different reasons you know, for the higher level of civilian casualties caused by the British forces. Yeah, I mean, one interesting comparison that might be made is a comparison between the battle at the start of the Irish Civil War in Dublin in 1922 
and the Easter Rising, and the casualties were much higher in the Easter Rising. There was much less kind of concentration of anti-treaty forces, and they were more clearly within defined spaces, so, you know, most often of the four courts, whereas I think the rebels had occupied a considerably more kind of significant area, circle, in the centre of Dublin. And I suppose another difference, too, would be that the pro-treaty soldiers had a clearer sense of where they were, what they were up against, what they faced, and so on. Whereas the British soldiers had, you know, very little idea of what they were actually facing as they walked through the streets of Dublin. I mean, they really didn't know where the rebels were, what weapons they had, and so on. There were some important differences between the two battles. The British units seem to have suffered more heavily from casualties than the Irish units, even though the Irish units would have been deployed for longer in the city. Now, I don't think that means they were sort of more zealous in suppressing the rising anger. Whereas the Dublin units, I mean, the Royal Irish Rifles, the Dublin Fusiliers, they would have known their way and their officers would have known their way around the city, so they wouldn't have been caught in the same way. The fact that many of the troops landing in Kingstown or Dunleary didn't even know what country they were in. Some of them thought they were being sent to France, assumed they'd been sent to France, and were amazed at how well the, the natives spoke English. They landed in the most loyal part of Ireland outside of Belfast, nowhere else they would have received such a rapturous reception as they did in Dunleary and Black Rock, which were all parts of the old Unionist heartland in Dublin that they were marching through. Their experience was a, a rather strange and very tragic one. And what is often also not generally remembered is that whether it was a sort of a, an acknowledgement of their losses, but the, the Sherwood Foresters were the people who were selected to carry out the executions of the 1916 leaders as well. But it was, as you know, a very small event in the overall scheme of things. It uh, was dwarfed by events elsewhere. But the Germans certainly latched onto it, and uh, some of the best pictures of the destruction wrought in Dublin are the ones that appeared on German postcards and uh, German newsreel of the uh, events in Dublin. You, know, you can hardly blame them, as um, so much propaganda was made out of the, their treatment of Belgian towns, particularly Louvain during the invasion of Belgium. You can hardly blame them for pointing out that the, the enemy were guilty of similar destruction in Dublin.